Back to the Gospel of Matthew, we return this morning and uh, once there to the 14th chapter again. Matthew chapter 14, this is at page 820 in your pew Bibles if that's helpful for you. Matthew continues to present us Jesus as what? What office, remember, has he been after? King, thank you, yes, king. He is also prophet and priest. But here he continues to deliver to us King Jesus. Now, the King Jesus was shown to be provider king, almighty, who meets our needs and our greatest needs last time according to his perfect will and power. Now we see him as our protector king who guards and keeps us throughout our lives, even through the storms that must be visited upon our little barks, our little boats of our individual lives and the boat that is the church. Storms will come. They have, as you know from experience, your, your life, like the evening for these disciples, can switch from smooth sailing to tumultuous churning in an instant with a single phone call, a single piece of news, a diagnosis, uh, even a single word. But for us who are in Christ, there is peace, even in the midst of the storms that can be explained only by the fact that we know the King and that the King knows us, the same King who makes the clouds his chariot and who rides on the winds, King Jesus. Let's pray. Open our eyes now, O oh Lord, to see you, to see you enthroned on high and mighty and ruling over all things. Grant us to see you, O oh King, right here with us, present according to your promise and ruling all things for our good, even as um, Elder Ware, your servant, prayed a moment ago working out your perfect purposes in the storms. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus had fed the 5,000 that evening. And now, verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! 
Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Matthew recalls that Jesus made them get into a boat. A better translation might actually be compelled them to go. One commentator says they, that he packed the disciples straightway into that boat and sent them to the other side of the lake. The word that Matthew uses here can mean constrained, that Jesus compelled his disciples by force to board that boat and go. And we might scratch our heads a little bit about that, right, about the urgency of it all, had we not John's gospel and his parallel account to fill out the picture a bit for us. John tells us in his account that the crowds Jesus had just fed were now preparing to make him king by force. And who can blame them? I mean, who wouldn't want such a king as this who could provide people with an ample supply of unending food? Apparently, the urgency to separate his disciples from the crowd was to keep his disciples from being swept up in those sentiments as well. It was important for the Lord to quash this movement as quickly as possible for what it was, a misunderstanding of the Lord's real identity and purpose. Yes, Jesus is king, but not in the way that they thought of and wanted to make him king. They, like Satan, you remember, during the time of Jesus' sore temptations in the wilderness, they were offering Jesus a shortcut to the throne that was no true pathway at all to his true kingship anyway. Yet in this episode, we do learn that Jesus is king, don't we? In this Gospel of Matthew, which from beginning to end turns our eyes time and time and time again to the kingship of Jesus, we see him here reigning in the storm. Jesus is king. And so we see him here through the whipping winds and the battering waves and the, and the blinding spray of the sea, the storm that rages around the disciples and within them. Just as the storms rage around and within you, too. We see his kingship displayed in his providential control, in his presence, in his power. First note, well, the providential direction of King Jesus. Who is it who sent the disciples out onto the sea? Was it not he himself who, as we've already said, virtually pushed them into the boat, packed them off to sea? 
It was he who sent them. And they were obeying. They were obeying their king, doing just as he had told them. That's very important to note. They were obeying King Jesus. And where did it get them? It got them smack in the middle of a howling, buffeting, life-threatening, terrifying storm. Providence is, as we confessed it together not long ago in this house of worship, God's providence, that is His sovereign direction and control over all things, is to us a great comfort, isn't it? But we've got to confess, don't we, that it is also filled with great mystery. How can obeying God get us in so much trouble? so to speak, into so much danger and turmoil and even fearful, painful situations, sometimes right into the very eye of the storm. Shouldn't the fact that Jesus, our King, is ruler over all mean that our lives should be smooth sailing, trouble-free? You know, something more like like a Christopher Cross song? Sailing takes me away to where I've always heard it could be. And and if the wind is right, you can sail away and what? Find serenity, right? Shouldn't that be our lives as Christians? Why isn't the Christian life like that? I can't rightly tell you. But what I can tell you with confidence from Scripture is that the Lord is providentially directing your life. Even when He sets you off to sea, only to get tossed in the storm. That's why we sang Psalm 42. Just uh, those selections together this morning. Thy billows all roll over me. On On me thy breakers fall. The saints have often felt as if they've been caught in a storm at sea, you see. But still they have known. They they are God's billows. They are God's breakers that are rolling over us and falling on us. God is sovereign over and even ordains the storms. And that, by the way, includes those... Just to make it perfectly clear now, because I know what you're thinking, this includes the storms that you bring upon yourselves. I want to take you into the deep for just a moment to remind you that God the Son was not limited during the days of Jesus' incarnation only to the physical locale where Jesus was present at any given moment. God the Son remained omnipresent even though Jesus could only be in one place at one time. God the Son remained in control over all of the universe even as Jesus humbly made his way from one town to another not knowing exactly what he would find when he got there. So God knew the storm was going to fall down the gullies 
as it does from the mountains into the volatile geographical bowl that is the Sea of Galilee, also known as Gennesaret, just as the disciples came rowing to the middle of it. He ordered, God ordered that storm. And I think Jesus gives us a hint of his identity as God the Son and the correction that he gives to the disciples when in their terror they mistake him for a ghost. Jesus says, verse 27, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Literally, I am. Now where have you heard that before? You know, at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. The name by which the Lord revealed himself. Do you hear the overtones of deity here? One commentator suggests that it would be better to translate the phrase, not it is I, but rather I am the living one, master of wind and wave. My point, dear flock, is that Jesus is king in the storms, indeed over the storms that visit your lives and that visit the church as a whole. Our king is providentially in control of everything. Second, King Jesus, your king, is present in the storms, in the storms of your life, with you. Though admittedly, he may hide himself. He may hide himself for a long time. Hide himself from your view. Notice that Jesus appeared to them when? Matthew is very careful to tell you. Verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night. What time is that? Sometime between three and six in the morning. He had sent them off to the sea, off to sea under the friendly red light, sailors' delight of dusk, with gentle evening breezes that suddenly churned into black, violent winds. And now, after hours and hours and hours of grueling work and terrifying buffeting, of their boat. It's hardly any wonder that even the Lord with them was mistaken by them through the eyes of fear for being a ghost, an apparition, a spirit. But Jesus is with them and he means for them to understand that. So Jesus will assure him just as he will assure them and will assure us again when we come to the end of this gospel. The very last verses of the Gospel of Matthew, and he will say to us, the I am is with you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. King Jesus is with you. Always.
even as we see in this episode, that doesn't necessarily mean that the storm is going to subside. Maybe not immediately anyway. Notice that all but the very last line of the entire dialogue that we've just read in this history must have been shouted above the sounds and the sprays of that stormy sea. The assurance from Jesus, the answer of Peter, the command, come, the cry, Lord, save me. Even Jesus' corrective, oh, you of little faith, all of it took place before Jesus got into the boat and the wind ceased. Jesus, King Jesus, is with you in the storms. Even if you cannot see him, even if you can barely understand him sometimes. Debbie directed my attention last week to the testimony of a recent contestant on the popular television show, America's Got Talent. A young Christian woman sang her own original song and was awarded a direct entrance into the uh, competition, but before she sang, in answer to the judge's probing questions, it became known that she has cancer and that she has been given a 2% chance of survival by her physicians. Here's her story that Debbie found online and shared with me. After the doctor told me I was dying and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, he left her after five years of marriage, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit, and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now, and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Would you pray for grace for me to get through this? Maybe you'll say, I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He could never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor. Banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day. Sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die, and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. 
prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to. That's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened, but count me also among the friends of God. For I've seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale, laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means, what is it? That same question is the one I'm asking again and again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees and my mother's crooked hands and the blanket my friend left for me and the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. This is a prayer I don't mean yet, but will repeat it until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy, and I can't really explain it, but God is in there, even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough, and it's true. God is on the bathroom floor. I don't present her testimony to you for, your, for emulation in every detail, per se. Any more than Matthew does himself making Jesus out, mistaking Jesus to be a ghost at sea. But I find this common thread for us to note well. 
God is there. Jesus is here, right with you in, in the storms, even the storms that blow in the fourth watch of the night on the bathroom floor and causes you to feel more like you are sinking than walking. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says it this way, and he's a man who knew of what he spoke from experience. Peter was nearer his Lord when he was sinking than when he was walking. In our lowest state, we are often nearer to Jesus than in our most glorious seasons. Blessed prayer, Lord, save me. It's a prayer that brings the Lord's hand near to snatch us up at just the right time. Lord, save me, and comes his hand. And the reason we can be fully confident in all that we've already said so far is that third, King Jesus, your king, is powerful over the storms. Notice that the stormy sea is, is no impediment to him whatsoever. It's turning them in circles in the boat, you know, beating upon them. But it's no impediment to him whatsoever. The heaving, rolling, rocking waves are to Jesus like a sidewalk, like stair steps to make his way along to them. And then he no sooner gets in the boat, but just as we saw him do back in chapter 8, he stops the storm. Verse 32, the wind ceased. That's power. That's power. Dear ones, we often feel so small and so weak. And it's true. We are. But let us never make the mistake of projecting that weakness, that smallness, onto our Savior, King Jesus. Yes, circumstances can seem overwhelming, and hope may wax very, very, or wane, I guess, to dimness in our view. And the waves and breakers may be washing over your heads. But your Savior, your King Jesus, is stronger than all of it, whatever it may be in your life right now or at any given time. He is all-powerful. And being the all-powerful one that he is, he can be and he will be true to his promise to work all things for your good. All things for your good. Take courage, my brothers and sisters, and be strong. Winston Churchill experienced combat for the first time as, as a young soldier in Cuba in 1895. He wrote this, wrote home to his mother, there is nothing more exhilarating than to be shot at without result. <laughs> 
Pascal had real faith in Christ, and he put it much better. There is some pleasure in being on board a ship battered by storms when one is certain of not perishing. That's our situation as Christians in the trials and the troubles and the dangers of our lives. Listen, even death itself cannot ultimately triumph over us because as Jesus says though we die we live though we die we live whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die only one who has all of the power of the universe, could dare to say such a thing, and he has and he does to you and to me. Whatever your troubles, whatever your sorrows or fears may be, know this. King Jesus is ruling over them. King Jesus is with you in them. And King Jesus is all-powerful to see you through them. All of them. All kinds of them. And I'm guessing that must be why Matthew added this very short account of the powerful healings that Jesus performs on land. At Gennesaret, starting there in verse 34, right on the heels of the incident at sea. Multitudes there needed only touch the fringe of Jesus' garment to be made well. The point is, whether you are on the land of Gennesaret or on Gennesaret Sea, Jesus is king. As we sing from time to time in this house of worship while we're giving our offerings to him. He is Lord of heaven and earth and sea. And therefore what? How does the song continue? What do we say? O Lord of heaven and earth and sea, to thee all praise and glory be. That's the conclusion that the disciples drew to from all of this, from the action they took in verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now, isn't it marvelous we've been making our way through Matthew together? Isn't it marvelous now to see how the disciples' faith has progressed? You remember the last time they were at sea and the storm blew up? We studied it together back in chapter 8. Jesus stilled the storm at sea then too. And the disciples, remember what they did at that time? They looked at each other and they asked themselves, what sort of man is this you know, that even the winds and sea obey him? But now they don't question, they worship they don't ask, what kind of man is this? No, they confess, this is the Son of God. There are actually two main lessons for us, dear flock, this morning. One of them we've barely addressed directly, though I think we've entirely addressed indirectly, and that is this. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust in him. Keep your eyes 
on Jesus. And when Peter asked to come to the Lord on the sea, there was a great act of faith on his part. I know there's some disagreement on there, but I think the only conclusion we can draw is that Peter was acting in faith, in strong faith, when he said, Lord, I want to come to you. But when he took his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink. Dear ones, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, on King Jesus. That is faith, like that Martin Luther wants to find this way. Faith is nothing other than a sure and steadfast looking to Christ. And second, worship. Worship Him. Offer Him the praise and the adoration and the gratitude and the love He is so worthy and due from you. Worship Him shoulder to shoulder with your fellow disciples the way they did that that day. That's what they did. That's what we're doing right here, right now, in this house of worship. Confess and worship Him for who King Jesus truly is, the Son of God. Amen.